COVID-19 update, satellite imagery analysis explained, and reflections on the US-Australia relationship. Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPE podcast. In this week's episode, analyst Nathan Rusa explains how he uses satellite imagery analysis in his research. Constructed since 2017, so you can look back at historical imagery and see what used to be an empty field. And a former U.S. defense attaché reflects on his time in Canberra and on U.S.-Australia strategic ties. This is the only place I deploy Marines where they come back better trained than when they left. You usually have to retrain them when they go. Wow. We'll have to get them back, you know. But first, Michael Shoebridge speaks to Robert Glasser for an update on the COVID-19 situation globally, the successes and failures in responding to the crisis and the challenges ahead. Well, hello, uh, it's Michael Shoebridge here, ASPE's uh, Director of Defence Strategy and National Security, and I'm talking with uh, Robert Glasser, uh, ASPE's uh, expert on all kinds of natural disasters. Happy uh, events, yes. Yeah, uh, events that can uh, cheer up everybody on the planet. Robert, we spoke a few weeks ago about the course of the pandemic, and at that time, uh, the picture was chunks of the developed world, Europe, um, UK, uh, Australia and Japan, Taiwan, had uh, gone to a lockdown approach to suppress the virus. And at the time, the virus hadn't really taken off in great chunks of the less developed world. So that's places in Southeast Asia, Latin America uh, and Africa. But that picture's now changed. It might just be worth going through what the big picture is like on this virus. Yeah, as you said, Michael, the uh, the pictures changed pretty dramatically. We were going through full lockdowns in places. Um, we were seeing actually surprisingly few outbreaks, explosive outbreaks in less developed countries, which was rather curious given how contagious the virus is and how much air travel there was between, say, Indonesia and China, including Wuhan area. So yes, we saw that and uh, and now things have changed. The lockdowns in many places were successful, although with great loss of life and, and illness and economic impact. And now countries have relaxed the lockdowns and we're seeing now sporadic outbreaks in places, even places that handled the outbreaks well, Hong Kong, for example, Japan, the numbers are spiking as well. So, yeah. Yes, yes. Although that picture of successful lockdowns, uh, the US never had that and is an example of uh, the great virulence of the virus. Uh, what, 16.7 million reported infections? Yeah. Um, the US government has said, and that will be chronically underreported. Uh, and now over 150,000 deaths. So, you know, to me, the the big picture statistic is if 16.7 million people on the planet have been reported as as infected by uh, COVID-19, there's 7.6 billion people on the planet. So it's it's about 0.002% of the global population so far. We're seven months in. That means this pandemic has maybe years to run, uh, given where we are now. Because where would we have to get to before uh, the natural course of a virus starts to tail off? Yeah, there was a a virologist who commented, as an American who was using baseball uh, metaphors, he said, we're barely in the second inning 
baseball's nine innings of baseball in this virus. Actually, I'd say we're just in the first inning. And yeah, there are two ways that can it can stop. One is, of course, with a vaccine, so that we're inoculated. And the second is if a significant percentage of the global population, 30, 40%, I guess it depends, actually has had the virus and has now then developed res resistance or some immunity to the virus, then it can tail off. But short of that, we're in it for the long haul. Mm. So, you know, the Prime Minister here, Scott Morrison, has spoken about international air travel. Uh, it's likely not to start until mid-2021 or maybe late 2021. Yeah. Now, my view is, well, that's absolutely sensible to say that and think that, but there's no um, certainty that international travel would start up in any meaningful way, even as early as the end of 2021. Yeah, it's difficult to see that happening. I agree. Um, it, we're in this stage now for many countries, including Australia, of testing the idea whether we can selectively open up and manage the virus, which will, of course, start spreading again, unless we've completely eliminated it from the from Australia, from all of our all the country, and whether we're able to manage that effectively. If we are, then that's the model going forward. We have periodic outbreaks, we shut down selectively, and we try to keep as much of the economy going as possible. But international travel doesn't fit neatly into that picture. No. And that's interesting. You know, bringing it back to Australia with the outbreak that we're seeing down in Victoria, you know, centred in Melbourne, this is a really uh, important test of the suppression strategy, isn't it? Because Absolutely. This whole approach has to work in Victoria. And what seems obvious is we already know how contagious and virulent the virus is. How easy is it to get the genie back in the bottle given the extent of the outbreak we're seeing in Victoria? So even if the suppression strategy works in Victoria, it might be such a difficult thing, needing so many of our national resources around contact tracing, quarantining and health practitioners, that we need to reopen the debate about whether suppression and dealing with these spot outbreaks is credible or whether we actually do need to move to elimination uh, until if and when a vaccine is available. Yeah, at huge economic cost, of course. But uh, I mean, there are trade-offs in all of these issues and it's, they're not easy decisions to make. But Probably within a week, we'll see whether the cases begin flattening out now and decreasing in Melbourne. If they don't, we'll have to move to the next step. And I don't sense any, I'm sure you've, you have views on this as well, Michael, I don't sense any willingness for complete shutdown at this point. And if it'd be very interesting to see if the cases in our hospitals become overwhelmed, if the number of people dying increases dramatically, what it will take for the, the political will to shut down entirely again. And, but people have experienced shutdown. It's had huge economic impacts. They're really reluctant, uh, the public. Well, there's another angle here, which is uh, there's the sheer amount of death that may or may not be acceptable. And uh, there's that uh, fairly coldly calculating side that says, uh, is it the elderly and therefore is a chunk of the population concerned, but they still want to get on with their lives. Um, there's that side of it. But looking at the US, there's the yeah. economic, political and social division 
that comes from having a, an uncontained pandemic. So it's not it's not the simple public health or economic effects. There's a deep societal impact and psychological impact in having an uncontained pandemic. I, th I think that needs to be in our debate when we think about what to do. Absolutely. There are those three issues. There's the economic impacts, there's the public health issues, and there's the emotional and psychological impact of shutdown, which I think probably exacerbated the the situation, the racial tensions in the United States, and contributed mm. to the strength of those uh, the the rioting that happened in the protests. Mm. And so far, community cohesion in Australia has been very strong. Yeah. Um, so my view is we need a credible strategy that isn't just letting the pandemic run its course if we get into trouble in in the Melbourne outbreak. Now, uh, vaccines. Um, mm. Still the same kind of news. There are successful uh, clinical trials happening and with different kinds of vaccines, ones that are made in a traditional way, you know, like Johnson & Johnson with a variant of a, a cold virus, but then new production tech techniques like the US Moderna company doing RNA vaccine development. That will be the first time on the planet that that kind of vaccine has been developed and used. So none of this is risk-free. And then there's the economic, political and strategic question about who gets a virus, a vaccine, if it's successfully developed, how quickly and when? And all of that looks to be, it's not this year, it's into next year, mid next year, maybe later, depending on success in particular trial. Well, the only certainty in this is that people are working as hard as they can and there's a lot of money being uh, thrown at solving this problem quickly, understandably because of the huge global economic impacts. But that issue of who gets it and when could very easily play into the geopolitical tensions that have arisen and actually accelerated, I think, during the pandemic, particularly between the US and China. And it'll be very interesting to see how that plays out, whether the US takes a more global-minded approach uh, and certainly how China plays that as well. I think the good news for Australians is our government and some of our medical research institutions uh, and the Gavi partnership uh, put Australia in a relatively good position globally to be uh, an early uh, receiver of a vaccine and also maybe to find a vaccine. Uh, now, the last thing I was just going to mention is, you know, we talk about uh, where might be recovering best um, economically as a result of the pandemic. And people look at China and say its relative economic recovery is strong. But what we talked about right at the start says, well, let's be careful rushing to that judgment. No one can reopen their economy successfully uh, while the virus is at this um, stage globally because no country on the planet has had enough infection to get population immunity and no country on the planet has a vaccine. So I'm cautious about um, early cheerleading about which economy is, is doing well and opening up. I think it's a bit like that uh, baseball analogy or, you know, who is going to predict the outcome of a game in the first inning or the second inning of the game? <laughs> it's way too early to draw any conclusions about that. We've got a long way to go. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, I think all we can say is we'll see. Mm. So it's like that Winston Churchill quote, but not, isn't it? You know, we're, we're not even at the uh, end of the beginning 
here. Right. Uh, this this pandemic is still in a relatively early stage. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you, Robert. It would have been good to talk a little bit about you know the the kind of things open uh, for us to do. You know, if we're going to have a suppression strategy, you probably need different approaches to testing and population health surveillance. Um, at the moment, we've got this really precise but quite expensive and slow to administer nasal swab testing. Yep. Yep. Uh, that's great, but you could complement it with things like you know sewage testing, saliva-based tests, uh, pool population tests that at least would give you a rough guide to where was their community transmission and where did you need this more precise testing. And save time, you could react more quickly. The other thing that would be good to discuss would be impacts in our immediate regional neighborhood, countries like Indonesia, which has not shut down their economy. And the cases are, of course, going up and up, but we're still not seeing the overwhelmed hospitals for the most part, which is very curious. And it raises some questions, of course, about reporting, testing, but also potentially the case fatality rate. Mm, uh, yes. It could be lower yeah. at the lower end of what we were expecting, but, but even so we would expect uh, to see. Yeah. The kind of social distancing, quarantining and contact tracing that Australia can do is probably not feasible yeah. uh, in Indonesia. You know, A, the facilities aren't there. B, you can't do social distancing with those mass conurbations like Jakarta yeah. and also just the economic dislocation. People are living much more hand-to-mouth. They're not getting job seeker payments from the federal government. Yeah. So the options available to manage it in Indonesia are quite different to here. And the economic impacts, the yeah. huge reliance on the informal sector uh, where there is already very massive unemployment, millions of people now unemployed additional people as a result in Indonesia and big knock-on impacts on the informal sector. Well, Robert, we are going to have to end it, but I'll end it by thanking you uh, for, for the intellect that you're bringing to, to looking at this. Uh, but also, you know, maybe on, on a good note again to just, uh, I, I probably need reminding as much as anyone, but Australia is managing with this pandemic as well as anywhere on the planet, in my view, and it's uh, so far, driven cohesion between government, companies and the population. And we've had some fissures there, but overall, it's a cohesive approach. And that's probably something that uh, we need to really be mindful of keeping as we get through the pressures we've talked about. It's so refreshing and so important for the, for the months ahead, but actually for the years ahead as well. Thanks. Next. Kelsey Munro speaks to Nathan Rusa about using satellite imagery as a research tool and how he developed an interest in this type of analysis. Well, I'm Kelsey Munro, Senior Analyst at ASPE, and I'm very pleased to be talking to my colleague, Nathan Rusa. Researcher here. How are you doing, Nathan? Yeah, good, thanks. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Um, so we were going to talk about your um, satellite imagery analysis, which is kind of a bit of a pioneering research technique, I guess, that you, you've become really um, at the forefront of, really. In fact, the first time I saw your work on this was when you documented the Xinjiang camps um, in late 2018 through satellite imagery analysis. So how do you find a camp on a map? Yeah, so we started in 2018 with about 30, and by now we've got at least 250. So there's a big network of them. And I guess in a way it's just training yourself where to look because Xinjiang's a completely closed society, at least to information coming to the outside world. So satellites are one of the few avenues left in that you can sort of look at it in an uncensored and unrestricted way. Mm. So, yeah, it basically just starts with 
knowing where a few of them are, be that from media reports or be that from sort of other sourcing, such as um, Chinese official tender documents, and sort of slowly building an idea of what they look like, what the different structures look like, what the different um, facilities look like. And then from that, it's just scanning Xinjiang for for hours on end is, is sometimes <laughs> sort of trying to pick out those particular buildings. What what are those sort of key telltale features of of a camp in Xinjiang? So, I mean, generally they've been constructed since 2017, so you can look back at historical imagery and see what used to be an empty field. But generally they're also um very industrial looking. They're like they're clearly for housing people, but they're there they've got a very industrial vibe to them. They'll often have a fence on the entire outside sort of keeping people, I guess, contained. The leaf often have fences internally that keep people contained. You'll see watchtowers. Then there's also little stuff that sort of makes it, sort of builds the case for what it is. For example, cars aren't allowed inside camps. So if you look at a residential building, a residential complex in China, you'll see cars scattered around, whereas in a camp, they've all sort of parked on the street or in sort of a makeshift car park outside. Hmm. And so it's sort of picking up on those little signs and to some extent a lot of what helps is trying to narrow down the area that you're looking in because in the end you always have to put your eyes on the satellite picture and sort of pick it out but you can sort of narrow down where you are looking for example for this project what we did was we um we had a look at nightlight imagery so where basically where in the desert was bright and where was habitated in um early 2017 and compared that to now and a majority of the places that are sort of newly lit up that used to be desert and now are sort of bright at night, a lot of those turned out to be camps. Mm, that's so interesting. We're doing some more work on mapping more camps now, um, but you're also looking at aspects of other forms of other changes in the landscape in Xinjiang. Can you talk about that at all yet? Yeah, so satellite imagery, I guess, in a way is a snapshot in time. So it sort of captures the world as it looked on that particular day. So a lot of what we're doing now is sort of this crackdown started in earnest in um, March, April 2017. So we're trying to just get an idea of what Xinjiang looked like as a whole, sort of in as much more holistic sense prior to the crackdown and now. And you'll see changes in sort of a vast array of places. So you'll see sort of police stations pop up on every corner in a city. You'll see new highway checkpoints with sort of armoured vehicles at them. But you'll also see the destruction of a lot of cultural heritage whether that's some um, some sort of pilgrimage villages which are basically they're a historically significant part of Uyghur culture and Uyghur history and sort of every year when it was allowed tens of thousands of Uyghurs would visit and pray there and sometimes even the sand is considered to have healing properties and you'll see that entire sort of route to visit that spot in the desert plus the pilgrimage site itself has been demolished. You've also seen probably a good 40% of mosques in Xinjiang be completely raised since 2017, and that includes some that were only sort of rebuilt in 2015 or so. There was a huge campaign to sort of, I guess, renovate a lot of the mosques. So you'll see ones that were renovated one year and then demolished the next. So that shows sort of the shift and the suddenness of that turn and that crackdown. And yeah, in a way, it's sort of all the changes have have sinicized Xinjiang and in many cases they've acted to restrict or in some cases entirely remove what is considered cultural heritage and culturally important for a Uyghur identity or for a Muslim identity. 
You wrote a piece of analysis also recently on the China-India border and the disputed territory there and um, conflict between the two sides. What do you look for in a that sort of analysis? How do you figure out what's going on from satellite imagery? I mean, that's a bit more simple because you have sort of a very set area that you've got to look at. So you just get satellite imagery from that. And for example, in, I think it was late June, there were claims that sort of both sides had disengaged and you could look at satellite imagery and just literally put a point on every building or every vehicle and show very much that China has actually had actually moved forwards. Um, so I guess in a way that satellite, again, sort of cut through a lot of the politicized narrative of the event. So unbeknownst to me doing the analysis, in India, a lot of that had become politicized. And if you thought one perspective, then that put you on one side of the political spectrum. If you thought <laughs> another, that put you on the other side. So in a way, it was useful to sort of just have that, yeah, that unbiased eye in the sky to sort of plot what was really happening and get a good sense of yeah, what the facts were on the ground. And mm. in many ways that wasn't as complex. It was more just getting the right imagery and looking at it. Mm. But yeah, that sort of cut through a lot of the cut through a lot of the narrative that was sort of misleading or wrong. Mm. Well that's interesting, isn't it? Because in both those cases, there's circumstances where you can't actually access the ground and there's hugely politicized narratives or no information coming out at all. So the satellite imagery can kind of overcome some of those um, limitations, figure out what's going on. What, what have you found are the limitations of this kind of work on the other side of things? Yeah, so you, it's basically you're looking from one dimension. So instead of being able to see sort of a full dimensional picture, you're literally just looking straight down. You're not getting street view. Yes, yeah, yeah, not in most <laughs> cases. So that, that does limit it and it's also always important to have a lot of contextual information that sort of builds what your picture is. I remember once I was looking at Myanmar and Rakhine State and I was puzzling over these little things that I saw for a good hour and every basically in January after the genocidal violence, um, these little things appear outside every village and they look like mortar pits. And so I was interested in that for a good couple of hours until I realised that that was just the communal place where they bring the rice and dry it. So <laughs> right. in, in many ways there's sort of that need for the cultural and contextual <laughs> information before you have an idea of what you're looking at. And even in Xinjiang where there's... I mean, there's less surprises, but there still are a lot of sort of buildings and you'll, you have no idea what they are and you can, couldn't figure out what their purpose is without that contextual information. It forms one piece of the picture and that's what makes it difficult in Xinjiang because in many cases that's the only piece that's available. But in an ideal sort of satellite analysis, you'll also have input from people that are affected on the ground. You'll have inputs from sort of so many different sources and the satellite sort of helps you, I guess, verify some of it and sort of builds a more complete and um, comprehensive narrative and an idea of what's going on. But yeah, it's, it is only one dimension, one source, and it's sort of, in most cases, difficult to build a coherent picture up with just that. And how did you learn how to do it? Did you study something relevant at uni or is this something you just figured out yourself? Um, so at uni, I sort of feared all over the place at uni, <laughs> but I mostly did um, international security stuff, which didn't really have that satellite impact, that satellite part of it. And I remember I took a couple of courses, but they were in many cases very um, basic stuff that I'd done, that I'd already knew how to do and had done before. And a lot of that came from um, environmental monitoring. So that's where satellite analysis is probably most 
developed and most used mm. is in sort of the monitoring and modeling of the environment. So sort of ecological studies, yeah, yeah, tree cover, ecological stuff. Birds. So it's like trying mm. to sort of remotely sense the particular vegetation community mm. or what habitat is useful or what is being changed in the landscape in an ecological sense. So that's probably where satellite analysis is most developed and where most, I guess, most of the resources go. And so, yeah, an interest in that sort of ecological side of things was probably pretty strong in building up how to, I guess, complexly use satellite imagery because Google Earth's available for everyone to sort of look through and get a clearer picture of what's happening. But to sort of build indices and sort of try to get more depth from that satellite picture rather than just a, a physical photograph, that's where a lot of that came from. That's great. Well, thanks, Nathan. It's been great talking to you about it. Yeah, no worries. Thanks. It's been good. Finally, Dr. Huang Letu speaks to Colonel Raymond Powell, who recently concluded his post as US Defence Attaché in Canberra. They discuss his experiences during his time in Australia and the defence relationship between the US and Australia. Welcome to the program, uh, Ray. As you wrap up your three-year assignment uh, in Australia, it's a great opportunity to ask about your, some of your reflections over your tenure as a defence attaché. It's been a critical time. So much has changed. It seems almost as a lifetime ago when we met in 2017, where the concept of Indo-Pacific was hardly a thing, and now it is a front and centre. So, Ray, would you mind uh, sharing with us some highlights of your posting here? Well, thanks. And first, Hung, it's just really good to see you. It's uh, you've been a good friend while while I've been here. Uh, we of course share some some common uh, ground here with uh, my time in Vietnam, and we we share the love for that country. Uh, you know, when I think about highlights, you know, I sort of think about triumph and tragedy. You know, we we had uh, the, the most conspicuous triumph was that trip uh, we took the prime minister out to the USS Ronald Reagan, and we had an arrested landing and a catapult launch, and uh, he gave just a tremendous uh, pro-alliance speech there on the hangar deck uh, in front of those two huge uh, Australian and American flags. It was just a such a wonderful day, um, but we also had some tragedy while I was here, and we've had actually two different events that stood out. There was the, the, the three Marines back in 2017 who were uh, uh, killed off the Queensland coast in, a, in, a, in an aircraft mishap. Um, and then also three U.S. veteran uh, firefighters who were killed during the bushfires. And, but even then, I mean, there, there, was, there was a sweetness in the, all of that, uh, in the outpouring of support that we experienced from all levels of government, uh, from the Australian people. It was just kind of a beautiful thing. And in fact, I, one of my very distinct memories was uh, on the day that the uh, the MV22 crashed off the Queensland coast. Almost uh, immediately, I was called by defense and they said, look, the minister wants to talk to your secretary. And I realized I just got into the role. I was new and I didn't have any of the numbers in my phone. And I had to, I ended up calling the Pentagon switchboard of all things here. I was, I was the senior defense official in, the United, in, in Australia and I didn't have the phone numbers. Uh, and so I called the switchboard after about four, four phone calls, I, I got lucky. It just so happened that the Pentagon, uh, the uh, Secretary of Defense's scheduler said he ha he's going to walk in here in a few minutes. So wow. I was able to call defense back and say, oh, yeah, I got the secretary on the phone. I looked very <laughs> smart that day, uh, but uh, it, was, it was a little bit of serendipity. Well, right into deep waters, right? <laughs> well, I, I suppose it's hard to um, just mention several highlights. It's been such a busy time for you, I'm sure. But uh, 
I wonder what what were you expecting before arriving to Australia? Was there anything that surprised you during the time working with the defense in Australia? Well, sure, yeah, and I I mean I can say a lot of things about that, but I think what really stands out is how rapidly the environment, uh, the strategic environment, seemed to shift. Um, and maybe it wasn't so much that the environment shifted, but our recognition of the environment shifted. You know, That's we right. had new national security strategy coming out of the United States. We mm -hmm. had a new national defense strategy. We had a new Indo-Pacific strategy. Right. And we were coming to terms with the fact that the world was very, very different from, from the way it had been in the previous decade. And Australia, meanwhile, was going through its shift and it was having its Pacific step up. And of course, it just released its defense strategic update. And all of this is just this recognition that the strategic circumstances change quickly sometimes. And uh, we've had to do a lot of adapting to, to kind of get on top of this new reality. The U.S. talks about now uh, a word that we didn't use very much before. We call, talk about strategic competition mm -hmm. with these huge revisionist powers. And, you know, the, the Indo-Pacific is now recognized as being our priority theater. That's right. That's That's different from when I was, you know, deploying to uh, to the Middle East and and and, and spending my time there. Mm -hmm. um, and Australia has, you know, in its defense, defense strategic update, has really now emphasized its regional focus, saying, "Hey, this is our region, and we need to pay close attention to what's going on here, yes. and commit to making those investments to to securing our country and 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 developing sovereign capabilities." It's it's really been very fast paced three years. Given such challenging environment as you just described, the complexity of the U.S.-Australia alliance um, and uh, so much that the two countries can do together, uh, what are some of your advice to, for example, um, the future of the alliance and to your successor as well? Where are the most to put focus on and what would you want to see next in our defense cooperation? Sure. Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that we can do is is just build on the I think the astonishing success of the force posture initiatives. Um, you know, then we're talking about the Marine Rotational Force up in Darwin, and also the enhanced air cooperation. Now, the 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 Marine uh, Force we call MRF D uh, mm -hmm. is the more uh, is the longer term, it's the more, more mature of the two uh, programs, but it's really. Well, you know, a couple of things have really come out of it. One is the things that we do bilaterally together, exercising together, capabilities development together with Australia, we've discovered that's really powerful. In fact, we had a senior U.S. Marine general was here talking to the ambassador last year, and he said, you know, I, I deploy Marines all over the world. And this is the only place I deploy Marines where they come back better trained than when they left. You usually have to retrain them when they go wow. left to get them back, you know, Uh, and and this was this was quite an astonishing statement, but also there's sort of this other pillar, which is the regional engagement piece. And what we're discovering is the uh, opportunity to train together with the U.S. and Australia is very attractive to regional countries. Um, you know, Australia is becoming a little bit of a destination for countries who think, boy, if I want to get some really good military training, I should go down to Australia. You've got the, the Americans and the Australians down there, and they can train at a very, very high level. And one of my favorite little stories is um, an example of where this can go is uh, a couple of years ago, we were talking about uh, the future or the, the next rotation of Marines coming in, and we said, Australia's got this new 
out of area task group called Indo-Pacific Endeavor. Yes. What if we embarked some Marines on that mm -hmm. and we now jointly engage the region together with Australia with the U.S. in a supporting role? You know, we're used to because the U.S. is big and you know, the Australians smaller country, uh, smaller population, smaller military. That the U.S. is always in the leading role. But let's flip that. Mm -hmm. Let's let's do it the other way around and show how versatile this 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 alliance really is. And we did. And I mean, and, and actually, what was fun was we did it really rapidly. And we agreed. You know what? It may not go perfectly all the time. We're going to learn by doing. We're going to figure out what works, what doesn't work. We're going to get better at it. And it's been really powerful. We've done it a couple of years in a row now. We can't quite do it this year because there's some things yes. going on here with this pandemic, but uh, it's been really powerful. Ray, as the U.S. is preparing for the next presidential election in uh, November, end of this year, uh, meanwhile, there are a lot of concerning uh, news coming up uh, from the U.S., not only the protests, but in general, um, the governance and the health of the political parties and also the leadership, uh, the role of U.S. in the Indo-Pacific. In general, there is this tendency that there are decreasing sort of confidence in public opinion in the U.S. role in the region more broadly. I wonder what are your views and what, what kind of bright spot you think um, we could look at uh, at the moment? Sure. Hey, um, look, I, I'm glad you asked about that. You know, it is, it, it can be hard to watch the headlines sometimes. Um, one thing, one great thing about representing the U.S. is everybody knows what we're doing all the time because our news tends to be international news. And our, um, when we have problems, it's out there for everybody to see. We can't hide it. We, right. we don't hide it because we can't hide it. Uh, we're a big, messy democracy. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes our progress is messy. But, you know, the ambassador likes to talk about the self-correcting genius of our democracy mm -hmm. that, you know, oftentimes the, the good thing about the United States is we tend to when we have these the, the, these str struggles over progress, we get there. Sometimes it's hard to watch, but we get there. And, you know, our, our North Star remains the same. You know, we we strive to to achieve a more perfect union. I'm the I'm the son of a of a civil rights activist. I my, my father was arrested in 1961 for uh, traveling from New Orleans to Jackson, Mississippi, and being uh, arrested in a quote colored waiting room. Um, and it was an effort. It was a it was a wonderful, peaceful, nonviolent protest um, that was it was called the civil excuse me the uh, the Freedom Rides of 1961, and um, it was powerful and it worked. Uh, they uh, successfully integrated the interstate transit system. That was that wasn't that long ago yeah. that we were still going through that period of the Jim Crow South. So we have come a really, really long way. We still have a ways to go, but we're going to get there. Well, thank you uh, for sharing your thoughts with us, Ray. It's been a pleasure to have you on the program. But also, as we bid farewell to you, we thank you for your service uh, over the years here in Australia. Wish you best of luck in your next posting and please stay in touch with Australia. Thanks so much, Juan. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to join us for the Strategic Vision 2020 conference, which continues next week. Upcoming guests include Minister for Defence, Linda Reynolds, the 28th US Permanent Representative to the UN, Samantha Power, former MI6 Chief, Sir John Scarlett, and former Director General of ASIO, Duncan Lewis. Head to the ASPE website to register. Thanks for listening. See you next week.